This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. In his classic novel, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Ken Kesey writes, McMurphy laughs, rocking farther and farther backward against the cabin top, spreading his laugh across the water, laughing at all of it, because he knows you have to laugh at the things that hurt you, just to keep yourself in balance, just to keep the world from running you plumb crazy. He knows there's a painful side, but he won't let the pain blot out the humor, no more than he'll let the humor blot out the pain. If ever there was an author we suspect our old pal Doc Sportello would enjoy, other than a certain reclusive fellow hiding on the other side of gravity's rainbow, it'd be that acid-fried humanist Kesey, who also wrote something more than just a little pertinent to inherent vice in general, and today's scene in specific. You had a choice. You could either strain and look at things that appeared in front of you in the fog, painful as it might be, or you could relax and lose yourself. God damn, Ken. Today's guest once wrote, Time goes on and you don't know what to do with it, so one day you wake up and you have vivid memories of things that happened 20 years ago. But in those recollections... You're not even a kid anymore, but an adult with actual bills and responsibilities. The nostalgia for yourself has already shifted. And you're thinking of a few of those paths you never quite went down. From the girl you met at a party and just assumed you'd see again but never did, to that other girl who years after you last had a drink with her, you stumble across a photo with her and a newborn baby on the internet. Or that girl that used to live in your building who you still half expect to get a call from one of these days saying that she's back. The memories all swirl together, and movies are a part of that, which means sometimes I find myself back during opening night of Pulp Fiction at the Chinese, because that seems like a pretty good place to be stuck in. But you can't be stuck there any more than you can go back and find one of those girls from long ago. You're stuck now in the mysteries of now, the films of now. Plus... I'm stuck in my apartment trying to figure out what to make of inherent vice. This shouldn't have been that much of a problem. Paul Thomas Anderson's last film, The Master, affected me and glommed onto my gut like few films have done in the past decade, and I'm still hypnotically drawn to it. In comparison, I am drawn to inherent vice and feel like I'm finding my way in there slowly, although the film's deliberate impenetrability makes that difficult much as it might seem like the sort of film that I can get a hold of pretty easily. But I have seen Inherent Vice five times now, and I can say this with absolute assurance. I'm getting close to having an opinion on the thing. That is today's guest on the strange and sinuous majesty of Inherent Vice, doing what he often does with his writing, capturing the seemingly uncapturable and defining that which is so hard to define, which is to say, defining inherent vice, or at least what it means to him. And what it means to him is really fascinating to me, as he's a writer about film that I greatly enjoy. On his website, Mr. Peel's Sardine Liqueur, 
He always finds the melancholy in movies without being maudlin. He probes them without being pretentious. And in general, just seems to have a knack for IDing that which makes us fall in love with the movies. All of which is why I am so thrilled to say the words. Peter Avellino, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Bless your heart for coming on. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. I am someone who loves reading your work, and I'm a particular fan of your essay on Inherent Vice. And it's one of my favorite to go back and reread and re-re-re-re-read. And I'm very excited to talk to you about it today, the film, because I've just been spending years reading your essay like a crazy person. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you look so terrified that I said that. I'm not gonna, no. I promise I won't kidnap you. <laughs> You're not going to end up in my trunk at the end of this episode, okay. I swear. Okay. I swear. Okay, I believe All you. right. There, you know, I might tape you to a chair and just have you talk to me about like your thoughts on the deleted scenes of the film and things like that, but I promise you, you will get home safely today. Okay. <laughs> you have something uh, to say? Well, deleted scenes, you mean they're those sort of collages on the on the Blu-ray. Are you talking about that? Or? Yeah, I mean, I, I was gonna, like I said, I was going to tape you to a chair and okay. make you, uh, but I mean, I don't, is well, that Well, there's a little bit of that on the, the Blu-ray of the master as well, that there's sort of half-deleted scenes, half, you know, bits of footage that you're not entirely sure how they uh, would fit in. You can kind of see where they you know, do, but... We're going to go ahead and kick off our first official capital D digression of the episode early. <laughs> and PTA, if you're out there, if you're listening, I love you. Peter loves you. But I really wish you would sometimes just give us a straight deleted scene, like start to finish. I love, I love the little mini movies mm -hmm. that he puts together. Uh, for those of you who don't know, and I don't know how you wouldn't know if you're listening to this podcast, you are must have you must be an awfully big nerd for Inherent Vice, so you've probably seen the, the deleted scenes package. But if you haven't, on the Blu-ray, there is a, I guess you'd call it a short film called Everything in This Dream, which is a quote from the novel, in which instead of giving us, you know, deleted scene one, deleted scene two, whatever, alternate take five of, of the film laid out, uh, we instead get this five-minute kind of montage with, uh, cut songs or cut selections of songs from Johnny Greenwood's score. And there's kind of fittingly, I suppose, especially for a film like Inherent Vice, and it's also fitting for the master, the scenes are not presented in chronological order. They're mm -hmm. not really given... You're never really given a sense of place or where it's supposed to fall in the film unless you've obsessively watched it over and over, and you're like, I bet this is right after the Topanga House scene. or, And it's just... It's a it's a mood piece of all these little alternate takes and shavings and deleted sequences. Yeah. And it's hypnotic and it's beautiful. But gosh, I sure would love just to see them laid out individually, just just as a nerdy fan, to be able to watch them start to finish. Instead of seeing you get the sense you're getting the thirty second middle of a ten minute deleted sequence. Yes. Mashed up together with like Eight other 30-second middles. There's something to be said about the mystery, I have to say. There's something to be said for that, that we, you know, we know that there are much longer cuts of certain films, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood being four and a half hours or however long the master was before he sliced yeah. it down and cut out all these elements that you can see. You know, you know how much Laura Dern probably had a bigger role in that film yeah. and other elements and all the stuff involving Freddie Quell that you see in those Delete, not deleted scenes, obviously, but just collages or trailers or whatever they are. You know they're there, but you 
have to sort of guess at what they are. There is something to be said about the mystery almost. Gosh, you sound like a better host of this show than I do. Jesus, get the hell out of here, making me look bad on my own show. No, no, no. No, no, I totally agree. And I actually, as I said, I do think it is very, it's very vice appropriate the way he has been packaging his his leftovers for Mm -hmm. us for the past few films. In that, uh, as you said, we get a sense of what these moments are, but we don't, there's there's also a dislocation in that we don't know where they fit. We have an idea of where they might but we don't quite know where this is supposed to go, but instead it just gives us a mood and a tone. and Or as the kids would say, a vibe. It gives us a vibe. And if ever there was a vibe movie, it's Inherent Vice. Yes. Right? Yes, absolutely. Where are you going? I see, I, I no, see the, no, I see no, the wheels listening. turning in your I'm head listening. right now. I'm listening. You got something. You know, well, it, as time has gone on, I... I found myself getting less interested in in plot. I'm not saying plot isn't important, but you know, so much the past few years I've moved from watching late night talk shows to watching movies late at night. Mm-hmm. Often favorites of mine, noirs go great late at night, but it's like it it's these movies that fit the hour. So that sort of means I'm not watching a lot of Tony Scott movies that late <laughs> because I kind of want to drift off to sleep with these things. And watching them in that context, I just, I'm watching the imagery. I'm watching scenes I've seen before. I'm listening for lines of dialogue, reactions from actors, and I'm not so much paying attention to plot anymore. And as time has gone on, but an inherent vice sort of falls in this middle ground where the plot does matter. It matters more than the master in in a lot of ways because, you know, it's a mystery. And at the same time, so much of it is just this mood that if you asked me to write a Wikipedia summary of Inherent Vice, I'm you know, I just watched a lot of it last night and I'm still kind of hazy on some things, (laughs) I have to be honest. A lot of people are probably. There was an episode, uh, episode six with Drew McQueenie where I just gave an and it took like a solid five or six minutes where I covered every strand okay. of the film. I say that because I want you to believe me when I say it does all interlink. It is a fine and firm lattice that all makes sense if you want it to. I absolutely believe that. But what's I great do. about the movie is if you do want that, and I've said this on a previous episode, but one of the things that I find just absolutely enthralling a pretentious nerd that I am about this film is a I'm a I'm a big theme and structure junkie, mm-hmm. uh, which is just again the height of my nerdetry. Sure. This film, every one of the little dangling threads, or what feels like a dangling thread, what feels like a phantom thread, <laughs> Peter. That could. Work, I'm so yes. sorry um, <laughs> to everyone listening. I, I'm I'm so sorry. I'm not a professional. I'm, I apologize. Uh, for every dangling thread, for every what seems like a conversational cul-de-sac, that it doesn't feel like it's going to go anywhere. It doesn't feel like it's doing anything. Every single goddamn thing in this movie not only leaks up plot-wise, but so thematically enriches the film, if you can get your arms around all of it. And so it's that, that what, what, what makes that amazing is you can... Watch it just for the nuts and bolts of plot. If you want mm-hmm. to get out like Doc does where he's, he's sitting on the side of his bar and his kitchen and he's just connecting everybody together. Yes. If you want to watch it that way, and mm-hmm. I have, it works and it's enthralling and it's really enriching because you see how resonant all of these elements that initially felt pointless truly are. And yet, what's so great 
you can just say, no, no, I fuck it. it I know the film noir thing. The, the mystery never matters. I don't need to follow the mystery. It's an excuse to get my hero in a room with the bad guy mm-hmm. or in a room with the girl who's going to lead him to the bad guy or the room where he finds out the girl is the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And that's all I'm here for. That's mm-hmm. all I want. And that's what I, one of the myriad of things I love about this movie is it works on any of those levels. Or you can be a real nerd. And play Inherent Vice Roulette, and each time you watch it, just watch it for one of its, like, 15 stories, and it all holds together. It's a miracle. I absolutely believe that. It's a miracle, this movie. Yeah. Well... I'm glad we got that worked out. Okay. Our first digression of the of the episode. We, we we jumped in way earlier than usual, and I'm glad we did. We, we're knocking them out one at a time. So we can wrote, just do digression after digression <laughs> after digression. Well, that's what the show is. Okay. Okay. You know, you that 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 intro that I gave was the intro to your piece, mm-hmm. and you close that opening graph with, "But I have seen Inherent Vice five times by now, and I can say this with absolute assurance." I'm getting close to having an opinion on the thing, which is a line I love and I'm a little jealous of. So, okay, six years after the release of the film, mm-hmm. do you have an opinion on the thing? I like it very much by now. Uh-huh. Um, I've sort of found my way into it. Mm-hmm. I freely admit that it doesn't doesn't get me deep down like the master does. That's an honest answer. Okay. It, I'm not going to kick you out. You love what you love. That's true. That's true. And I do love the master. I okay. just love inherent vice a okay. little more. But I've, at, you see, when I wrote that, I, I was trying to find my way into the film because mm-hmm. in some ways I was a little bit lost Yeah. Uh, during, during my first viewing. My first viewing was sort of, a, which was at the Dome in 70 millimeter, and it was sort of, well, that was interesting. And I almost <laughs> did, wasn't sure because even when I was, a, after I wrote that piece, I was like, I really focused on the melancholy. Was that wrong? Did I misinterpret the movie? Is the movie just a straight out comedy and I totally misread it? I remember a week after I posted that, I wrote a whole long thing on Facebook t- t- talking about how maybe I should take this down. I'm not oh, sure no. if I, I'm not really sure I, I got the film, and um, and I that that even led into my talking about a lot of the movies of 2014, which I looked it up when I was getting ready for this, and that was kind of a pretty dry year mm-hmm. for movies. Um, was uh, Under the Skin? Was that 2014? Actually, Under the Skin. That was the only other one that really sticks. Yeah, you know what? Under the Skin, which I admittedly haven't watched for a couple of years, I kind of, at the time, called that the best film of the year. Mm-hmm. That was that was tops for me. I remember John Wick was that year. I liked John Wick a lot, and that was kind of it. Um, Jesus Christ, I feel so old, which I guess is appropriate for the well, film. But... It's six years, I mean, yeah, uh, you know, and no, and Inherent Vice too, but, you know, a lot of the both Oscar bait films and, you know, summer blockbusters and all that stuff just didn't, that was a, that was a real weak year. <laughs> and think, you know, I was thinking about when I wrote this on Facebook, like compared to all these other movies, at least Inherent Vice is doing something to me. At least I'm trying to figure out what it is because that's more interesting than the alternative. And isn't that great that, even if it frustrates you, oh. that I feel like it takes a really cold, disengaged person to not at least want to, if you see the film and you don't dig it at first, if it's just, you know, what the hell was that? Yeah. There's something, it, I don't think it's the most inviting film to, how would I say this? I don't think it's the film that begs you to rewatch it. If you're not at least a little in love with it, 
But if you're a little in love with it and a lot confused with it, mm-hmm. you you still kind of want to go back and wrestle and, and, and get your arms around it. Yeah, that was a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. And... You know, and it, but I, I do think that there's also there's that audience that sees it the one time and they're like, no, no, never again, never again. I don't know what that was. That wasn't what I was promised. I'm not watching it. And I feel like in a lot of the reviews, at the time, you got that sense where they would just say, what is this zany stoner riff mm-hmm. on the ocean, a boat? I don't mm-hmm. know. And when, it, which makes – I hear you say – Oh, well, I was thinking about deleting this post or taking this down because I just focused on the melancholy. Did I miss it? Well, what, what I think is interesting is that I feel like you actually got it and that so many people at the time missed it because, because for me, this the melancholy is the movie. And that's one of the reasons why I love your piece and why I wanted to talk to you is because I actually feel like that's something that when the film came out, the melancholy wasn't really focused on beyond a lot of critics going, oh, and yeah, there's this out out of left field depressing sex scene near the end that just tonally doesn't fit in with this movie at all this oh, this stoner comedy at all and yet you were one of the first people to really write about holy shit this movie is really goddamn sad yeah i i'm a little glad i'm not doing that scene but i totally disagree <laughs> every with single that. guest that uh, every single guest says the exact same thing i'm really glad i'm not well doing i want to hear scene. that episode i think it's going to be a good one okay. we have some we i mean have a hot shot lined it, up it occurred to me that con- the scene we'll be talking about the sex scene does kind of, you know, you know. I mean, Shasta Faye only has like four or five well, scenes in this thing. damn that's thing. That's the thing, yeah, yeah. But well, we'll get to that later okay, a little okay, bit. Okay. But yeah, no, no. The melancholy to me is the movie, the, the the inherent vice of time, how you can't insure against it. It's going to change yeah. everything. Yeah. And yet, you, you just didn't see, I didn't read a lot of others part, striking out on that. You're right, and that makes, you know, there's a sort of... um a number of Paul Thomas Anderson's films kind of have this view of California past in some ways an exaggerated view, which mm-hmm. kind of makes me, which kind of made me think about maybe if I was wondering if I was missing the comedy of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, obviously there's a little bit of that in The Master with, in, you know, the setting in the department store, yeah. the post-war era, you know, the 70s and the valley in, in Boogie Nights. Obviously there will be blood also. And they're all sort of, portraying the past but in the slightly off slightly exaggerated way you know Dirk Diggler taking or rather Eddie Adams I should say in Boogie Nights <laughs> taking the bus from Torrance to Reseda which is basically that's, impossible yeah that's a hike I um when when he did a, a Q&A on Twitter when Phantom Thread came out mm-hmm. it was hashtag ask PTA yeah I remember that and uh and so I basically said via Twitter. How do you take a bus from Torrance to Reseda? And he responded to that by basically just saying in capital letters, one word, busted. And that was his entire answer. So he, you know. Um, how dare you? How dare you challenge our, our pal PTA? Well, even in the 90s, I was like, how do you do that? That's not possible. But that's kind of the... It's the magic of the movies. That's I mean, kind look of, at Doc. That's He's, kind of the Southern California that his films are set yeah. in almost. That it's, you know... It's what he remembers, and it's slightly more than that. There's, it's a geography of memory. 
Yeah, exactly. Where you don't think about how oh well, I had I had to I had to take like fifteen stops. Yeah, and I had to, I had to make fifteen changes just to just to get out here from Torrance. Yeah, uh, you know, although the characters in Boogie Nights do all seem shocked that it did come from Torrance. If you're understandably that, so, yeah. But it's it's it, it also takes place in movie time and memory mm-hmm. time. You know, mm-hmm. you don't remember maybe the entire bus ride when you go to meet uh, the girl you've been waiting to see for two weeks. You just you think about getting on the bus and you're so you're so amped up. You just you know, you're you're burning through all your adrenaline, and all of a sudden you're there. You're you're wherever you were going, and yeah. And I love that his movies do kind of take place in not just movie time, but memory time. And that's something that I really think about a lot as it relates to Shasta Fay, because so much of Shasta Fay in this movie, it's hard to really grasp if what iteration of Shasta Fay are we watching. Are we watching a memory of Shasta Fay? Are we watching projections of Shasta Fay? Who Doc wants Shasta Fay to be? Especially in this sequence, maybe more than any other. Well, obviously, the companion Neil Young scene mm-hmm. to this scene, mm-hmm. both of which it's never entirely clear if we're watching the geography of memory version of Shasta Fay or if this is the real Shasta Fay and how it went down, or if in the case of this scene, if it's actually happening in real time. Or it's just purely imagination. And what's so great about it is there's never really any signifiers given to tell you one way or another no. in this movie. No. And I think that post There Will Be Blood, especially, it's a little bit in punch drunk, but especially after There Will Be Blood, PTA doesn't seem to be interested in putting those those signifiers, putting yeah. those little little street signs on this geography of memory to get us around. It just lets you kind of figure it out on your own. Yeah. Maybe I'm an idiot. It took me two viewings to realize that Freddie Quell answering the phone in the movie theater had to be a dream. That, that, that no one... At the time, I was just like, okay, sure, maybe that's what they did in the 50s. They bring you a phone. <laughs> you know, someone called. I don't know what was going on. I don't on. remember if it was the second viewing or not, to be honest. It took me the second time for me to go, I mean, oh, I don't dreamt it, this because yeah, I yeah, remember... Yeah. Master doesn't know what the hell he's talking about when they, I, when he bumps into him at I, the end. I saw that film multiple times in the first couple of weeks, so I don't actually. It all kind of blends together of when <laughs> I was because um, I saw that movie twice in opening weekend at the Cinerama Dome. You sound like me with inherent vice. Okay, <laughs> I um, my inherent my first inherent vice viewing was fairly uneventful. The Master, however, was you know it was two viewings. It was a packed house both mm-hmm. times. It was this one of those weekends you always remember because it was literally about 114 degrees yeah. that weekend, yeah, I, remember. I remember. So that and for some other reasons, that weekend is always kind of stuck in my mind. I saw Boogie Nights at the long-gone Hollywood Galaxy on opening weekend. Is that, so, where, the, is that where the reel broke? Y- yeah. That's, I heard about, I've read about that. Yeah. That's when I saw it. Yeah. Son of a bitch. Wow, wait. I don't, don't look I, shocked. I, I'm hosting an Inherent Vice podcast. I'm obsessed. I, I didn't I'm, know it had been I'm, I'm your written PTA, about somewhere. I'm your PTA detective. I I'm, didn't know uh, it had been written about. And I just remember there was nearly... It, actually, the real breaking happened in the perfect spot. Where was it? It was... Um, Right after the uh, right after the New Year's segment, so it happened during the um, you know the film that's footage perfect. that we see. That's so that's perfect. kind of an intermission. On the other yeah. hand, there was a near riot because everybody <laughs> was furious. I remember at the time I was supposed to, uh, I I was going to go next door to the Chinese to see another movie right after mm-hmm. that. So it was just pissing me off. I couldn't uh, <laughs> couldn't call, it was pre cell phone. I couldn't call my friend to tell him I might be late. Out of I, the, uh, out of curiosity, what was the other movie? Devil's Advocate. Oh well, sure. As yeah. one does. Yes, as of one course, does. Of course, of course. Two, the two Boogie straight, Night, two and a half Nights, hour movies. Uh, yeah. Boogie Nights, Devil's Advocate, yeah, Devil Feature. Absolutely. Sure. I remember. Sure. I remember bolting as soon as the credits rolled. But uh, hey, father son relationships in both. That's true. Bad dads that's, in both. One being Lucifer, the other being uh, 
you know, a porn meister. That's true. I hadn't thought of that, but yes, yes, <laughs> I I did not know that famous screening had been written about. Okay, okay. Well, hey, there. Well, again, look 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 what show I'm hosting. Oh, sure, no, no, this no, is no, all no. deep dive, <laughs> deep dive, baby. <laughs> All right, so you have an opinion on the thing. You 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 enjoy the film. You very much. Now, would you say so? You're, I'm assuming the master and Boogie Nights. Those are your those are your two though for PTA. Those are your kind of yeah yeah yeah. What about in, inherent vice? I'm going to make you. I'm going to put you on trial. What about inherent vice keeps it from being in your top two or your number one? As it is with some I people. I was actually at this thinking table. about beforehand, and I'm not sure I've come up with a ideal answer that maybe there's just something about it that is keeping me at a slight distance as much as so much of the movie is shot in close-up i'm i'm connecting with it more and more and yet at the same time maybe because it didn't get me deep down in my first viewing i will always be slightly at a remove maybe it's because i don't live down near the beach (laughs) Who doesn't like the beach? Peter? Oh, I like the beach. I like the beach. I um, may, maybe maybe because I'm not a stoner. Maybe because I wasn't there in 1970. Hmm. I don't know. Well, I wasn't there in 70. No, I know. Okay. We're just gonna get into an argument. I'm gonna make you say that you love it. I wasn't there in 70, Peter, and I love I, the thing. I find 1970 fascinating. Mm. Oh, I I like the film very much. Just shy of loving it because I've watched it twice more in the past week, mm-hmm. and. It's kind of getting me more and more each it's, time. I was gonna say, doesn't it? Doesn't it start to stick with you? Well, yeah. It's it's almost like that song that you you're like, ah, this isn't for me. And then you find yourself, you start humming it in the shower without realizing it. You're kind of turning it up in the car a little bit louder without even really thinking about it. You start kind of whistling it on the street as you're walking to the office. There's something about this film, and even I. A person who pro- who clearly thinks about it way more than any human, rational human being should. Mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure why it gets its hooks so deep, and especially because there's nothing overtly explicit. There's no, aside from little bits like the journey through the past sequ- sequence where they're running in the rain. There aren't a lot of okay. This is a capital M marquee movie cinema cinema magic sequence. Yes, that's gonna just you know like the say the slow boat to China scene at the end of the master. I, I remember the the first time watching that. I was like, this this scene's gonna like this is burning its way into my heart, and I will be I will think of this scene on the day I die. To the day I die, there's, there's something indelible about this. When you watch Inherent Vice, I don't think you immediately think indelible. This is tattooing itself to the back of my eyelids, and yet you walk away and it start you just you find yourself humming its song a little bit more each time. And I'm not sure if that's just because it it starts to grow on you that it's talking about the. I think for me anyway, the the central preoccupation uh, 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 of my mind, aside from this film in specific, as you get older, which is about how much time there is and how much time there is behind you mm-hmm. and what's collected into that time behind you that you no longer have access to. Isn't yeah. that what all of us think of? You got the most wistful look on your face when well, I said because, that. That's exactly no, right. Because you're right. Because, you know, these are things I've been thinking about a lot lately, even not connected to this film at all. Yeah. It's just, well, it's been a strange time lately. But uh, <laughs> that aside, no. but there are scenes in the film that do 
that do stay tattooed in my eyeballs. The journey through the past scene, the um, the Clancy, the Clancy Charlock scene, the uh, you know very. You know, I'm glad you love Clancy Charlock. I'm just going to say that. No one shout out to Clancy Charlock as a character. She's the, great. That She's great, great arm slap. I love she that. Gives, yeah. I love that whole scene. I love you know the you know you, the the whole freeway thing that she talks about and boulevards I don't of the, regret. Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And just that's one of those scenes where you know them passing the. The gas, the gas mask, the gas mask back and forth. It just the way the light explodes behind Doc's head, yes. and the, the, the camera flares, and yes, the, the natural light. Everything kind of connects together for me mm-hmm. in that scene. Actually, the use of the Minnie Riperton song and uh, who's Maya Rudolph's mother? Yes, in that exactly. Scene, which is a perfect Ex- exactly, bit of and which got used in Us and Paul Thomas Anderson is thanked in Us. Was that because? I have no idea. Okay. Maybe okay. maybe he got them uh, cheap rights to I don't the song. know about cheap rights or if it's just maybe Jordan Peele thinking, oh, he already used this song. Maybe I should ask him <laughs> if it's okay. I was th- That seems like an okay. We'll have to go back and reread the Fangoria interview between those two. I did not read two. the Fangoria. I, I've read Fangoria in years, actually, but uh, I used <gasps> okay. to. I used to. Everybody wear your earmuffs for just a second okay. because we're going to do an Inherent Vice digression. Peter, you got to resubscribe to Fangoria. It's, it's fantastic. Such, it's been such it's a fantastic. Long, it's been such a long time. That doesn't mean you can't do it. See, we're talking about time. See how everything connects everybody. See how I used perfect to watch this many film is. more slasher films than I do these days. It, so. Oh, there's more than slasher films in Fangoria, <laughs> God damn it. And I, I, that's not uh, that's not dissing slasher films, by the way. I just uh, Which we all know Friday the 13th Part 5 and New Beginning is the best. But moving on, moving on before he can contradict me. That's the one Friday the 13th movie I've never seen, incidentally. Okay. I did say that this was a show of digressions, <laughs> but people listening only have so much patience. I will say, you should really check out Friday the 13th okay. Part 5, A New Beginning. Okay. It's a lot of fun. Okay. okay. And, and if Phil Blankenship is listening right now, and he were to hear you say that, <laughs> you would be banned from the New Beverly Cinema. Let's hope Outright that doesn't happen. Let's banned. hope that doesn't happen. Let's hope that doesn't Phil, happen. Phil, me and you are going to talk. Okay. About Peter. <laughs> we're moving we? back away from... Well, well we Clancy were, Charlock. Actually, uh, we, we actually did uh, almost kind of like uh, Inception here. We were doing a digression off a digression, yes, off of a yes, digression, yes, where we went yes. from the Clancy Charlock scene, which has nothing to do with our scene, no, it doesn't, no. to Fangoria, oh, yes. to a Friday the 13th Part 5, A New Beginning. <laughs> and master that I am, much like master, the master, yeah. I am wheeling us back okay. on the wheel of time. Okay. Going back to where we were, talking about what a great scene that was with Clancy Sherlock. Yes. And you were talking about the things in the film that you find sticking with you after you leave it. The stuff that is tattooed on your eyeballs, including scenes like Journey Through the Past. And then we were talking about the Clancy Sherlock scene, which no one talks about. That that's Other than you and me, literally just now. It really feels like somehow everything kind of comes together. Yeah, uh, the rhythm does. of the scene, the dialogue, her voice, um, you know, passing back the gas mask back and forth and just everything clicks for me right there. And to further to further be the maestro of this show and organize all of this stuff back together, there is a deleted scene that has never been released, not even on the everything in this dream little collage uh, of there's a sequence in which Clancy Sherlock and Tariq Khalil. Yeah, there's a bit of that in the uh, on the blue. No, you're lying to me. No, don't, don't you embarrass you. me on my own show but, and but say it's that like it's not a, there. It's like a two second. Yeah, cut it, to it's it. like a clip. It's like, but you but don't actually see something the was shot. Yeah, but, there's, uh, but there's a full scene that has never been released, and in that, in the in the film, and it's it's a scene from the book. Uh, it's not even in the shooting script. I don't think that wow, um, okay. Clancy and Tariq have. Uh, we mentioned her I, uh, earlier. Maya Rudolph 
who plays Doc's secretary, actually uh, organizes an illicit tryst between Clancy and Tariq in Doc's uh, Doc's office as like a matchmaker type thing. And he walks in on them having sex. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's the scene. There you go. Okay. Doc walks in on them. Doc walks in on Tariq and and okay. Clancy. Because it sounded like Doc wasn't in the scene for a second. Which, no, he uh, wasn't. Uh, not to the very end. And boy, okay. this is the most far afield digression that I think we've had on well, the show still this Still talking far. about the movie, though. Sure, so, I guess uh, it's better than talking about Friday the 13th Part 5, yeah, The yeah, New Beginning, yeah, a yeah. film whose title I will say no, no, no. every word to I, I, every single I, time. I, I'm I'm down with that. All right, I, I, I believe you should movie. do that. Yeah. You should go see that movie. Okay, okay, okay. But, I, no, but I'm before just... you do, okay. we're going to keep talking about Inherit Vice. Okay, that's fine, that's fine. But yeah, there's something about this film, and it's so ridiculous now to talk about this film after talking about all that, but there is something without it actually feeling indelible. To me, it somehow is indelible. It's it 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 feels like I feel like there are elements of it, and I'm getting more of a grasp on the plot, especially with watching it a couple yeah. of times. That I think I can, you know, just like on the board, I can piece together sure, a lot sure. of things. But even before then, it was like I was emotionally connecting with certain things. The Crocker Fenway scene, that it's almost like, you know, it's it's pretty plot-heavy scene, and yet at the same time, it's, you know, they're not just talking about plot. They're talking about, you know, what he thinks of Doc, and all the themes are kind of coming together mm-hmm. at that climactic point. You know, it's the climax of the movie, but, you know, it's not a shootout, unlike most detective Stories. No, it's talking to a guy who who can't even bother to relish his own evil like Noah Cross. Yes. You know, you'll find yourself capable of anything, Mr. Giddings. Right, right, right. It's just a guy who's just like, how much longer I got to be here talking to this asshole? Yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. The, the Whose evil is so banal and just kind of bored that, mm-hmm. and just not even almost, not even amused by this little guy. Yeah, he's not amused to. at all. He just, he's... But that's, again, that's something about Inherit Vice. That feels right. Yeah, totally, totally. You know, you see someone, and I'm not saying that Houston as Noah Cross is a bad performance by any means in Chinatown, oh, no. but it's such an exaggerated, not real portrait of evil. I feel like if you were to meet one of, if you were to meet that type of person in real life, it would be far more like Crocker Fenway than it would be Noah Cross. That that kind of outsized relish of evil. I think no, more often than not, it would be someone like Crocker who's just like, it's just dollars and cents to him. It's just, it's just, mm-hmm. it's just a business. It's all it is. You, 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 he doesn't care enough about you to hate you or be evil towards you. He yeah. just doesn't care. And something about that just feels right. And I think, as as inarticulate as it is, and I probably should be more articulate given that I'm hosting this goddamn show, <laughs> that's something about the film that it everything just feels right Mm -hmm. the more you watch it the more it feels like yes this is exactly the groove it should have this is exactly how things should be falling into place and these are the things that kind of shouldn't make sense the first couple of times because that's what's going to invite me to come back the performances all pop they're all right um there's not a bad music choice in the film nope um and but wait back to the performances uh you know even people who are in there for one scene for half a scene they all they're all there. They're all pop. You just want to know more about, you know, about um, Doc's Aunt B. Aunt Reet. Aunt Reet, like whatever's going on with Played her. Played by uh, Jeannie Berlin. Jeannie Berlin, who Blaine I met once at a thing, and she was very intimidating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would imagine that the the daughter of Elaine May would be a little... Yes. Would be, would be big. Would be big. Yes, yes. The Exa- big personality. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But that's what's also so great about this film and its casting is very smartly... Uh, 
very smartly even the smallest roles, like the one scene roles. You know, someone like, uh, you know, well, I guess he's technically in two scenes or one kind of one singular sequence. Getting Martin Short to play Rudy Blatnoid. Mm-hmm. What a stroke of genius that is because you're going to remember, especially in a film like this where there is such an accretion of plot and details shotgunned at you with, you know, every few seconds to it's going to this is definitely one of those movies the first time you're watching it. You don't remember the names, especially with these highly alliterative, wildly Pinchonian names, you know, Rudy Blatnoy, DDS, Japonica Fenway. <laughs> Come on. And so it it helps to have. Well, uh, you know, remember when Martin, Marty Short was in the, the, the purple velour outfit? That guy. That guy, he died on a trampoline, I think. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, who was, uh, you know, Reese Witherspoon when she showed up as uh, the, the, the DA? Yeah. So smartly casting these giant faces, these giant names, so that we have something to kind of hook on to as we get deeper and deeper in this thing. It's a stroke of genius. Of course, I think everything about this movie is a stroke of genius. <laughs> now... There's something else that you wrote, which was, I'm going to keep, you don't, I hate, you, Go you ahead. wrote it, Go you ahead. put it on Go the ahead. internet. Go ahead. Peter, you put it on the internet. Well, what do you want me to do? We're going to have a fight? No. Go, <laughs> Go for it. I felt lost even as I was exiting the theater, and not just in terms of plot, although I certainly felt that, but I also felt like something wasn't getting across, as if I had to be around in 1970 for total understanding or maybe I needed this film's version of one of those glossaries they handed out to explain Dune on opening night, which I got is incredible. That, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't sure what to think, how much this was meant to be arch, how much a satirical glance back, how much a yearning examination of why certain things were the way they were and are the way they are. Ah, that's a great line. Thank you. But isn't it's it's all those things. I don't think it's well, not one of those it, things and not it's None easier of to accept it's that all of now them. than it was for me on opening weekend, especially because with any opening weekend, you have the ads in your head. And, you know, the trailers obviously yeah. are selling something different in this yeah. movie. So it's you're like, oh, am I seeing Lebowski? Am I seeing something that's a little more sure. um, as opposed to this sort of meditation on, you know, time? Yeah. And. It took me. It took me some time to realize that I suppose that it w- almost wasn't going to be what I was expecting, or it wasn't going to be the master. Let alone this other version of Boogie Nights, which maybe some people were expecting at the time. Let alone or Lebowski or The Long Goodbye or whatever. It's its own thing. I don't see much The Long Goodbye in the movie, to be honest. I, no, and I, you, I get it. It's an easy oh, shorthand because totally, Alt, totally. because PTA and Altman. And so Altman had his detective movie, yeah, and PTA yeah. certainly has his detective movie. And so it's an easy shorthand to be like, oh, this is going to be his long goodbye. There's not even a goddamn cat in this movie, Peter. Damn, that never occurred to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's certainly not his long goodbye. It's it's his inherent vice. It, it is. His, I mean, there are other – I it's maybe because of the genre, the period that we know that he's a film geek himself, that it's hard not to look for other films in there. Yeah, yeah. You know, there there are elements of Cisco Pike in there, sure. whether they're, they should be or not. But it's like Chris Christopherson and Gene Hackman – are totally Joaquin Phoenix and Josh Brolin in this film. Exactly. And, you know, I never made that connection until you and I were in line the other night at the final screening, final primetime regular weekend screening of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It was wonderful. At the wonderful Los Angeles Repertory Theater. It was a great night. The New Beverly Cinema. 
And yeah, I'm gonna try not to start crying thinking about it. It was so perfect. But uh, we were standing in line shooting the shit, and we were talking about similar movies. And you threw out Cisco Pike, and I thought my my head was gonna explode because it had <laughs> never occurred to me. And if for 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 those of you who haven't seen it, Cisco Pike is a film in which Chris Christopherson, the great Chris Christopherson, plays a bit of a hippie stoner, and. Uh, you have a cop that's always busting his balls, played by Gene Hackman. And essentially, Hackman puts Christopherson on the hook to go make a big drug deal and give him the money. And the whole movie is basically him beating the shit and knocking around Christopherson, yeah. much the way that Brolin does throughout Inherent Vice. Yeah. And it, I, I've seen Cisco Pike. I love Cisco love Pike. Cisco Pike, yeah. God bless Harry Dean Stanton. Yes. And who... If there's anything missing from this film, another brief digression, it's a Harry Dean Stanton cameo. That's the one maybe the, maybe the one thing in this movie <laughs> that should have been there is Stanton. But that said, yeah, there the that is a I, I would I can now not watch Cisco Pike without going, Oh well yeah, PTA totally stole this in a good way, but totally sure, sure. totally used this as a framework. For this relationship between these two men, which is so much different and warmer and yet more kind of physically aggressive in the film than it is in the book, that he's totally taking Cisco Pike and, mm-hmm. and overlaying it across these mm-hmm. two. Never occurred to me before you said that, which is another reason why you're on. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, you know, Zabriskie Point is 1970 as well, and maybe any looking for any connection to that film is a total reach. But that film does have this side plot of a utopian city being built out LA in the land desert. development. Yeah. That's it. It always. All the great, all the great West Coast North. Why, why does it always come back to? Well, that movie's not really noir. But, well, no, no. Uh, but I, I'm just saying, in this oh, is a, because sure, this sure, is sure. A, why does it always come back to impropriety of L.A. land use? You know what film occurred to me just a couple of days ago that had never occurred to me in relation to Inherent Vice, mm-hmm. more so than Chinatown, would be the Two Jakes. Yeah, which does play more like Inherent Vice than Chinatown does. I'm not saying in terms of quality. <laughs> Inherent Vice is better than the Two Jakes. I want that stated for the record. I, I, I'm, but, but but the Two Jakes is weirdly more internal than you would expect yeah. it to be. It has all these eccentricities yeah. throughout it. Sure, it's a lot of it is kind of musing over the past and regret through narration, mm-hmm. like Inherent Vice does, and you know, there's a pretty weird sex scene at one point in The Two Jakes as well. <laughs> uh, again, The Two Jakes is not as good as Inherent well, Vice. Well, really quick, let's just say it's not a bad movie either. Two Jakes is a, is a fun, you're it, bored on a Sunday afternoon, you sure, gotta watch something. I have fondness for it. Yeah. I do, I do. Uh, it's just, well... You, it's the it's the sequel to Chinatown. It's not Chinatown. You know, Ch- Chinatown, has, you know, Chinatown is like a bolt of lightning, and the two Jakes is really just uh, well, you're sitting around on a Sunday afternoon, like you yeah. just said. It's on and TNT. You're like, oh, I gotta. Laugh. I guess. I mean, it looks beautiful. It's Vilmos Zygmunt yep. and all that. It's just it doesn't have you know a lot it's of it's just sort of sort of woozy almost. <laughs> and you, you know, inherent vice might be, you know, have that sort of feel of being under the influence, but mm-hmm. it is focused. It's Doc. It's yes. Doc's mind. It's, mm-hmm. and I, that's another wonderful piece of the film, which ties in very much with our scene today, which we are eventually going to get to okay. one of the, one of these days. Sure, one of these one days. of these days. Yeah. Um, we'll have you back, and we'll actually talk about the scene. <laughs> but that is, I, I'm so glad you said that because that is such 
that is the vibe of the film. The film is Doc's point of view in that it is just as addled as Doc. And yet throughout it, there's this red line of focus. He might not know why he's focusing on something. He might not even remember why. Just like as we're watching the film, we don't remember why. And maybe the movie doesn't quite remember why. And every once in a while, we need someone like Jade to actually pop up and go, no, it's an Indo-Chinese heroin cartel. It's this, 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 this. The movie is in, is just as confused as Doc. And not only that, the movie only reveals information as Doc gets that information. Mm-hmm. There's never that Hitchcockian, we know the bomb is under the seat. We only know the bomb is under the seat if Doc knows the bomb is under the seat. There's mm-hmm. never that beat where he's in a room and we know some heavy shit's coming because we can see the thing around the corner. Yeah. There's, none, there's none of that. The film is, in, the film is entirely based on Doc's perception of the world that he's in and the world he's trying to save. We only see what he sees. We only see it as hazily as he sees it, and we only understand it as clearly or not quite clearly as he understands it. And moreover, what makes, I think, scenes like today's scene so interesting Mm -hmm. is that when he's remembering something, he doesn't have to tell himself, I am now having my memory of Shasta Faye Hepworth. Because that's not how your brain works. You just have a memory. You know that that's what it is. There are so many points within this film where I think he might be having a memory, but the movie's just not going to stop to tell us because Doc's brain wouldn't stop to tell him, this is your Shasta memory. And maybe sometimes it'll be a little bit more explicit, sure, because Sorteliege will pop in. But even then, it's almost as if Sorteliege is Doc, is Doc's memory, is his mental internal Jiminy Cricket telling him, yeah. you remember that day at the, at the Ouija, with the Ouija board doc? You remember that day in the rain? And what's so fascinating is, again, a scene like this where I'm pretty sure that Doc coming into his apartment and answering the phone happens. <laughs> that happens. This is one of those movies where you, can, where you see something like that and you're like, well, I'm pretty sure that that's actually really happening. There's no reason for it not to be happening. But everything else that happens in this scene I can't tell you actually objectively exists within the universe of this film outside of Doc's skull. And that's how the entire movie plays to me as this is all filtered through Doc's eyes and his memory. True. He might actually be looking out the window using binoculars, but mm-hmm. that aside, I totally know what you're saying. Yes. Yes. Because you look at all, since it's all through his head and what he's seeing, there's this fluid reality to so much of the movie that the more I've seen the movie, the less I've been confused by it. And yet, the more you see it, the harder it is, I think, sometimes to say, this is explicitly what this is. And what I mean by that is the first time I saw this film, I'm like, what a sweetly romantic moment this scene is, the one that you and I are going to talk about today. Mm -hmm. What a sweetly romantic moment this is that he's looking out his window and she's looking out off the side of this boat that she's on. And they're both thinking each of each other and missing each other. How sweet is that? Now, that's the first time I watch it. I'm okay. sure. Okay. I am sure that that is what is happening. The The more I watch it, the less sure I become of of everything that's happening. The, mo- the more I watch it, I watch it now and I'm like, it, I don't know. Would she re- be? Would she be thinking of Doc right then? Mm-hmm. Is that his idea of her? Is it like a? Is it projection? Is it an imaginary imaginary moment of of what she's doing on the boat? And that's what I think is so great about the film is, the more you watch the film, the less confused you are by it. But I think 
the less sure you are of every single thing that's happening. You have less of a sturdy grip on a scene-by-scene basis, which is a funny thing to do when you're doing a scene-by-scene podcast of the movie. True. But yeah, a scene like this, the first time I saw it, I knew what this scene was. However many times since, (laughs) I'm sitting here having to have you talk to me about it because I don't know what it is anymore because the more you watch it, the more kind of time adds all these different layers of meaning to it so that you can't say it's any one thing. Now, I promise you I'm not stoned as I'm saying no, this. No, it no, sounds that's... like we are. But that's, that's again, that's the magic of this thing. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> well, I think I just blew the top of Peter's head I think off. You just, I think you just did. Um, it's, it's a strange scene because it's, you know, it's this wisp of a scene that I was almost, when I went back to look at it, I was surprised by because, you know, half of the scene is basically kind of plot. Yeah. Basically. Mm-hmm. It's also a weird thing that, uh, can I, this is almost a digression to what you just said, and I apologize. Digress, but digress there, away. There's something that always plays strange to me as cutting from him in a scene where he's talking to somebody to getting home, and then he picks up the phone, and that and same that person, somebody is on the yeah, phone. It's almost like, oh, remember we just had that scene together? I forgot to tell you this yeah, one thing. Yeah. And and it sort of happens earlier with uh, with Bigfoot, uh, maybe the first after the first big big Bigfoot scene, and he calls Doc at home because that yeah. scene always kind of throws me a little as well because um, Bigfoot is sort of, you know, set up as like this antagonist to Doc. Mm-hmm. And then after the scene at the police station, we cut to him calling Doc and he just goes, yeah, it's me. It's me. And, like and a buddy. And, yeah, like a buddy. And like, well, wait a minute, aren't they? Wait. And, you know, by now I'm used to their relationship. Mm-hmm. But in first viewing, even second viewing, it's like, wait, where? what's going on with these two guys? And then with the... Uh, with Benicio del Toro, there's a little bit of, you know, it still kind of throws you because it's just, it's it's something weird about the structure of the movie that it's it's not racing where you think it's going to race to like maybe screenwriting books tell you you should be doing. <laughs> this is the most anti-screenwriting book movie. Absolutely, in history. It, it's like screenwriting books say you have a scene with a guy, you go to the next scene, you move on to the next thing. Yeah. And in this scene, you're back talking to the same guy. And so it's like, okay, so this, you know, you're kind of one step forward, two steps back. You're sort of moving forward. But what you got to deal with this other thing first. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, like the earlier Bigfoot scene, there's momentary confusion mm-hmm. on Doc's end of, like, what he's talking about. I really like the way del toro says not known a couple of times not known not known known. no one ever really no one says things that way about they say i don't know not known that's like it's very official that way i really like that she's not just a doc she's not just a boat doc yeah (laughs) not just a boat doc there we go (laughs) she's not just a doc boat she's not just a boat doc god it's like that scene in uh boogie nights where uh Bill Macy says, oh. I've uh, got some guy's uh, ass in my wife's cock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry exactly. if, if the kids are at home listening. <laughs> I apologize, everyone. But no, you know, you're tired. You're so right. And what's great, what I love, love, love about this show, and it's totally selfish because it's just for me, is that I've seen this film God knows how many times. And something that never occurred to me is that there are there are these little riffs that build in the film. And mm-hmm. they, they repeat. And I even someone who stared at this movie so many times I, I never caught it there are literally two mirrored sequences in which doc meets with someone they download him on some information that's going on mm-hmm. they cut him loose doc goes home 
phone rings, it's that guy yeah. to go, hey, by the way, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I in, in Doc's case, it's like I had a police academy hotshot go to the last known whereabouts of Shasta Faye Hepworth. With Sanch, it's like, you know, I talked to the, the uh, Department of Justice. Uh, they're both reaching out to these other legal entities to go find out where Shasta Faye Hepworth is for Doc just after he's left them and had a big conversation with them. And then it cuts to this very kind of melancholy and sad and touching reverie of Doc's about Shasta Faye Hepworth. It happens Mm -hmm. twice where, like, literally they are structured exactly the same. And I never caught that until you said it just now. I have no idea what that means. I have no idea what these two mirrored sequences mean other than maybe life is a series of repeated loops. But it's, it's something I love about this show is, I'll never not see that now and not see that that mirroring and that, that kind of thematic riffage that builds in the film where we have these two twinned scenes doing the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. But kind of like time, and here we go, we're going to get pretentious. Each time you go through the loop, it means a little bit more. It's a little heavier. Just like the first, the first time you see this happen with Doc and Bigfoot, it's kind of sad and it's touching. But then when you see it again with Sanch with this sequence, it's almost even it's it's almost heartbreaking. Like it, it grows in meaning, and I never never caught that before. I'm, Do you just want to take over the show? Do you want to be no, the host? No, no, no. It's your show. It's your show. Absolutely. <laughs> How dare you come and bring something new to this? How dare you? Apologies. Apologies. We're gonna have to. We're gonna cut all this out. And I'm gonna say that I okay. discovered that on my That's own. That's fine. That's fine. Okay. That's fine. Good deal. Good deal. Good deal. <laughs> but you know, it, it is amazing that that both reveries are triggered by the exact type of structure: a download, a callback. Mm-hmm. And then floating off to imagine or remember Shasta Fay, And that reminds me of something else that you wrote. Okay. When certain cinematic reveries that seem like they can only come from this director do come into play, they seem to matter all the more. They're not just showboating for the camera, but recounting something that means so much more it hurts. There are those moments that we're reaching for in our heads trying to understand them, trying to know how we fucked things up, and wishing we could get back there. There is no better introduction, I think, into today's scene than that. So let's think about that, let's watch the scene, and come back and talk about it. Okay. Who better than Mickey Wolfman? San Pedro on board the Golden Fang. Who? Your ex, Shasta Faye. Shasta's on the, on the Golden Fang? My friend in the DOJ just called me, yeah. Uh, where, where's it going? Out of tea someplace. Huh? Out of tea someplace. Yeah, where? Not known. Not known. Hang tight. I'll get back to you. All right, call, call me. Uh, call me.
Shasta Faye. You know what? Let's we gotta talk about Shasta. We don't get to talk about Shasta a lot on Mm -hmm. this show because frankly, Shasta's not in the movie all that much. No, Uh, she's not. And yet she is a big part of what everything in Doc's world coheres around. The movie maybe not so much in some ways. The plot definitely has its hands on a lot of things, probably most most especially the the story of the Harlingens, which I think is the ultimately the backbone. Mm-hmm. But she's so central to Doc and to Doc's universe and Catherine Waterston's performance and even just I, the the way she kind of smirks and chews on the inside of her lip in this sequence. Uh, maybe I just identify too much with Doc, but boy, she kills me. No, she, I, de- I, I identify with Doc too, and I know what you're talking me. about. It, you know, watching this scene and watching her other scenes over the past few days, you know, just keep thinking about how there's very little we know about her. Yeah. You know, the, because maybe Doc doesn't. Well, exactly, exactly. You know, the big, the big scene, which is not this scene, but it's the journey through the past yeah. scene, which, you know. I, I don't think that's a made-up memory no, at all. I think, I, so I think it, you know all the everything that happened is you know innocence and pure and but at the same time the narration does mention that she was halfway out the door yeah, already and but we never see any melancholy. yeah yeah well it's also um, it's uh, this is going to be a weird cinematic connection but oh, uh, the film Irreversible and it mm-hmm. opens with that title card uh, time destroys everything. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it closes. I can't remember. The movie plays in reverse either way. Okay. But that that, that I, I always think about that title card, Time Destroys Everything, and that includes the way you remember things because, unfortunately, when you remember something, you're not able to remember it with the purity with which you experienced it. Doc is not able to remember. We're already, we're already walking away from our scene. A, but we'll come, Doc, we'll is, Doc is unable to listen to him. Tell him we'll come back. See how he's already hosting. <laughs> uh, Doc was able to experience that moment with pure joy and bliss and happiness as he's yes. he's with his girl in the rain and you know what uh, they didn't get the pot and it doesn't matter I know that feeling and I'm sure yeah, you know oh, that feeling too course. I think everyone does yeah. if they've lived a little yeah. and yet you can't remember it with the same level of joy because now when you remember it and maybe it's because Sordeliege is you and is the voice of your memory or maybe she's just someone telling the story but she knows enough to say you know, now when Doc thinks of that moment, he realizes she was already halfway out the door, as you said. And it it gives the memory of this perfect moment a haunting sadness that if it had had that haunting sadness when it happened, it wouldn't have been perfect and it wouldn't have been as memorable. And the way, again, God, I sound like a real stoner right now, but the way we're really having our, as I said in the last episode with DC, this is our, you and me sitting in the dorm room at 2 a.m. with the doors playing as I'm like, genius is next to madness, man. Don't you know that? But uh, uh, while I do sound like that, I think there is something to it when 
the, 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 the melancholy that just bakes into everything and how time destroys everything or ruins or sours everything is so on display. And I do agree with you. I do think Journey Through the Past happens, that, that whole sequence. I think that, that did happen. I'm not so sure about everything in this scene today, though, that it's is actually really objectively true, happening in the world of true. this film. It's such a wisp of a scene. And, you know, it, it, there's that blue on Doc's face, which is also there at the very opening very of the movie, scene. which is this blue that doesn't exist, which has a sort of Technicolor dye transfer <laughs> universal film from what, the 50s oh look to God, it. Oh, God, that's such a great way. I always call uh, it gunmetal blue, but that's such a great... Yours is such a more beautiful and eloquent, and I'm totally deleting it and then stealing okay, it and that's saying okay. it. That's but okay. no, uh, uh, you're, you're so right. It, it, yeah, yeah. And, 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 all, and in both sequences, Shasta is bathed in this very orange mm-hmm. in the opening scene the same orange as her dress mm-hmm. and in this scene just pure like argento red splashed yeah. across her face yeah almost like they're being visually they're very clearly being visually separated and defined from one another yes and it, and again it I, I i'm pretty sure the stuff happening in blue is really happening okay but the stuff happening red I can't oh, quite get my hands a, that's around. A, that's a vision of her. And yeah, yeah, again, maybe he's really looking out the window using binoculars, but he's <laughs> not. He's seeing what he wants to see, which is a vision of her. I mean, are we supposed to believe that he's actually seeing the golden fang out yeah, there in the water? There's that, I, I there's that, that so. two-second I mean, clip of the goddamn thing. Yeah. The, 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 the ship at the center of all of this yeah. madness. Yeah. Is that meant to be like an establishing shot, and then we cut back to Doc, and then cut back to her, even though... In the establishing shot, it's maybe like four in the afternoon, five in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. But clearly, when we see her again, it's midnight black out yeah. there, yeah. and only the lights, the the running lights of the boat, to illuminate her. And yet, as much as none of that makes any kind of chronological or logical sense, mm-hmm. it makes such an emotional, oh, emotional yes. sense. Where yes. You know, we were watching the scene. And I was standing right next to you, just sighing over and over mm-hmm. again. Not just because "Harvest" is a wonderful song by Neil Young, and we're going to get to Neil here in a minute, but it it makes such an emotional sense, even if in the cutting it doesn't make a goddamn bit of plot sense, no, or logical or, sense, or, or anything. No, yeah. yeah, and yet it coheres into this sequence that you know in the in the last episode with DC Pearson. We were talking about the scene in which Sanch and Doc are sitting at the belaying pin and, you know, they're chewing on what is or isn't the Golden Fang and what's going on with Mickey Wolfman. And I defined it as one of the most thematically dense scenes of the film because it feels like it's the book talking to the movie stylistically. You have so much of the kind of uh, the, the conspiranoid plotting of Pension and you have the ragged emotionalism of Anderson. On both sides, you've got Doc worrying about Shasta Fay, but you've got Sanch doing the whole death of the dream in the 1950s into the 60s and the betraying of not just the the hippie movement, but the betraying of the communist movement, the the, the leftward politics of, of Hollywood in the 40s and 50s and all of that stuff. It feels so much like Pynchon and Anderson's styles talking to each other. Mm-hmm. What I think is interesting then about this scene that follows, just as you pointed out, the the phone call follow up is this scene feels like pure Anderson to me. This doesn't feel like a lick of Pynchon to me Mm -hmm. whatsoever. This is Anderson doing his thing to the point that this scene is not even in the shooting script. Oh, wow. It it just skips right from 
Doc and Sanch at the belaying pin to Doc watching Nixon on TV and Penny coming in the room and seeing Coy Harlingen on TV. And this feels like something generated entirely by Anderson. And That's interesting. And I say that because of not only does it collapse everything that the film is, the weird, raggedy bits of plot are thrown at us in the first couple of seconds, just like it's scattered throughout the film when Sanch calls Doc back. It's got the the paranoia of Doc like constantly looking over his shoulder, which why would he be doing? What's he worried about in yeah. his own home? Yeah. Other than the fact that I get the feeling he probably doesn't lock the door to his bungalow, even that's, post Manson. That's probably true. Yeah. Well, yeah. clearly he doesn't because Shasta wanders in in the very first scene coming up along the, uh, the alleyway the way she always used to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it's got that pure goddamn heartbreaking romanticism mm-hmm. of PTA, that wry, wistful. You know, I, I always say this line uh, when... Mark Maron asked PTA what Punch Drunk Love was about. He just exclaimed, it's about love, baby. <laughs> and I, I'm sure everyone listening loves that I do that every episode now. But it it's, it's what this is. It's about love. Isn't that each of his films, though? God bless you for you saying it so I didn't have to say okay. it for the 50th time. Okay. It's all of his films. Okay. It's, it's about love. And it's okay. about how we love and why and how we fuck it up and how we wish mm-hmm. we didn't and yeah. how we wish yeah. we could go yeah. back. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And who knows if Doc was the one that fucked it up or if Shasta was halfway out the door just because they didn't fit or maybe she fucked it up. We don't know. And I, don't, I think that we don't know because Doc doesn't know. Mm-hmm. And as I was saying, this scene to me is pure PTA. And I think it's magic. And I think it's just... The way none of it should make any goddamn sense, but because he is a, this is not a pun, because he is a master, he knows exactly how to put this goddamn thing together in a way that makes pure emotional sense. And this scene makes so, so much sense to me. Mm-hmm. And it breaks my heart. And what, I think that the most perfectly overt bit of casting in this film is, is, Josh Brolin as Bigfoot Bjornsson. I think he is the most on the surface perfect because I think his character in some ways is the most fascinating and I think that what he does with it is the most fearless and surprising. I I would say that I love Joaquin Phoenix's performance, although as much as I love Joaquin, I don't think he's doing a performance that no one else in human history could have done. I don't know that anyone else could have played Bigfoot. The reason I'm saying all this is to build up to my coup de grace here, which is... Mm-hmm. I'm just mulling over what you're saying. I This movie doesn't work with anyone other than Catherine Waterston playing Shasta Faye Hepworth. I think she, because she was a bit of an unknown at the time, and she needs to be unknown to us, she can't... We have all these stars in the film. Reese Witherspoon, Marty Short, mm-hmm. Josh Brolin, mm-hmm. uh you have all these people who we know, uh, uh, Benicio del Toro, and we bring whatever associations we want to bring. Sure, sure. And if nothing else, they just help us remember this person's name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But with, Sh- with Shasta Faye, who we don't need to worry about her name because she gets repeated so often, but getting someone like Waterston, who we don't know, just like I don't think that maybe Doc knows her entirely, she's this unknowable force Coupled with the fact that Waterston's performance is layered with such subtleties and realities and just little bits of business. The way she almost seems to be stifling a smile in this scene as she's looking out. 
I, I don't know why it works, but I know that if, it, if, if, if she wasn't doing that, the scene wouldn't work the same way for me. There's a level of, of humanity and grace there that is so tiny, and if it wasn't there, I wouldn't care as much. Does that make any kind I, of sense, or I am I rambling? With, no, no, no. I agree with everything you just said, and on a very basic level— it's tricky. It's a tricky part to cast because she's in, you know, basically half a dozen scenes, and she needs to be somebody who registers. Yeah, she and, has to stick and with you. There and you have to fall in love of, with her. Uh, you know, actors and actresses who do not register. Yeah, and you have to fall in love with her. Yes. Well, and I don't know same, about you. I fall in love. I with fall her. in love with her, and yet at the same time, you know, I'm probably as wary of her as maybe Doc is at first. Yet mm. at the same time, Doc can't, of course, you know, that, drop her out of his mind. That obviously. You well, yeah, yeah, and you know, there, and then there's the later scene where it's not really sure, you know, what Shasta we're seeing. We're not really sure what she's going to say from one moment to the next mm-hmm. in that scene. You know, does does Doc want her to be a Manson chick? You know, does, you know, what did Mickey Wolfman want her to be? Mm-hmm. Is she kind of drawing this line of saying that Mickey Wolfman was in a way kind of a Manson in that scene? I'm still not really sure. I, well, boy, for someone who doesn't want to talk about that scene, you're no, opening it I, up. I, I didn't say I didn't want to. <laughs> I just said. I think that maybe more than anything. Manson she, went out to the desert. Sure. Just like Mickey Wolfman. Exactly. Yeah. I think if we're going to jump a little bit ahead, I think one very justifiable interpretation of that scene would be that she's kind of maybe telling him that maybe that's something that worked for her, that maybe got her off a little bit. Is okay. Not so much who was being Manson to her, but that she was cool being one of the girls to a Manson. Okay. We know that, you know, when she was with Doc, she was outwardly uncomplicated. Sure. That's what we're told in the with narration. With nothing more complicated than a pout. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And yet, and I think that's a, that's a, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think that's such a vital piece of information is because again, if Sort of Liege is coming to us from Doc's point of view, you know, it's like back when Doc knew her, you know, she didn't have anything more complicated than a pout. Mm-hmm. And now these, these face ingredients that he, he couldn't recognize. And I think that so sums up his relationship to Shasta Faye as she is this combination of ingredients that he cannot recognize. And I think that that's something that there's a lot of people that, you know, when the film came out, that sex scene was really heavily criticized as being such an out-of-nowhere downer. But I think in a way it's the emotional, one of the two emotional crescendos of the film in that it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the coming to terms with the fact that, yeah, you, you maybe don't, you didn't know this lady the way you thought you did. It doesn't mean you don't yeah. love her. It yeah. doesn't mean you don't intrinsically have a connection to her on some level that is beyond words. But I do think that part of that sequence is when she's saying, you know, what kind of girl do you want, Doc? Do you yeah. want one of those Manson girls? And when she basically says, yeah, I was with this really charismatic, controlling asshole that could show you hippies a thing or two. Mm-hmm. And he would, you know, not let me wear underwear. And he would take me to these dark, cold rooms. And he would even, you know, farm me out to his friends. And I, the way she discusses it and the way she brings it up, even with this coy smile on her face, it's almost as if she, you know, I, I think she's making it clear it was consensual. And I think in a way that was Shasta saying, this is who I am. Like, is this what you want? Is this what you think you want really? Can you handle this? Because I don't, knowing the kind of man you are, I don't think that you can. Just as, you know, Doc says, oh boy, guys sure like hearing stuff like this. 
and which is but but of course they do end up having sex because again I think that yeah. for all of I think that as much as Shasta much more than Doc realizes that there's reasons they're not together valid reasons they're not together it doesn't mean that she doesn't love him and I I, I do think that you know there's a reason why he's the person she keeps returning to like a like the chorus of a song and I do think there's a reason he keeps being unable to let go of her oh absolutely but I, I do think, I'm so glad you said that, though, that she is a combination of ingredients that he doesn't recognize. Mm-hmm. And he's, at first, he blames it on the inherent vice. I think he blames it on the inherent vice of time. Oh, time has changed her. It's, she's left, and now she's all in flatland gear, and her hair is a lot shorter than she said it ever would be. And I think he, he focuses on that without recognizing, well, without maybe... A, coming to terms with that, oh, well, maybe she was never the uncomplicated hippie gal that I thought she was. I think that's it right there. Yeah. Yeah. And which, again, in this moment, always makes me wonder which version is bathed in red out at sea, out at sea someplace, out at sea someplace, which version is staring back and maybe thinking of Doc wistfully chewing the inside of her lip. Is it the uncomplicated Shasta Faye or is it the one who's a real combination of ingredients that can't recognize who is also thinking of him. Like I, I can never just like there are people and I, I don't know that I would agree with them. I don't think that I would. There are some people that say that the Shasta Fay of the sex scene is mm-hmm. not really there. Um, I've heard I've read people uh, that have said that that is actually Doc's fantasy of Shasta. That's why she's dressed in the Country Joe and the Fish shirt and the bottom half of a flower print bikini, the way Sorrelese describes her. And yet it's, just as we were talking earlier about how the melancholy of our memory can, can taint uh, our remembrance of something, that the melancholy of everything that's going on even ruins Doc's masturbatory fantasy of Shasta. I don't buy that. I'm going to have to mull that over. I'm not sure I yeah, go along with I that. I don't buy that. But if you were to tell me, if PTA was to show up right now, and hey, open invitation, PTA. If PTA <laughs> was to, uh, we're working on it. If PTA was to walk into this room right now and say, oh, yeah, man, Red Shasta, that's not real. That's just Doc, that's in Doc's head. I would totally buy that. I would buy that one. Not no, being Red, real. Shasta <laughs> Red Shasta in the scene in question, that's. Sounds Doc- like an off brand soda. <laughs> <laughs> that's. That's Doc's view of her. Yeah. Biting her lip is Doc's view of her. You think so? Oh, absolutely. So you don't think that's really her? Not no, in that scene? No. Oh, boy. We're getting heavy. We're getting so we're, sad. We're talking about the same scene here, right? Yeah. We're talk- just, okay, no, okay, no. Okay. I'm just saying you're making me sad, man. You're making me sad. Well, because what's he looking at? He's looking through his window through binoculars yeah. at what exactly? And, you know, he wants to know where she is, and he, he can't, he can't, you know— She's gone to him, but oh, he, he can't. Uh... It hurt my heart, Peter. You think I like it? <laughs> look, 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 look. You looked at me with such sincerity. L- look, <laughs> look, look. The other night, uh-huh. I was watching this movie. Sure. A couple of nights ago. and Me too, surprisingly. Can you believe it? <laughs> well, it's getting ready for this. And as I'm watching it, I start to get uh, various texts from somebody. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of going in as many directions as the plot of this movie sure. does to the point that I had to stop watching the movie and kind of address what this person was saying in these texts. And at one point, she texted to me about someone else entirely saying, are you guys talking? Referring to someone who I'm not talking to right now. Mm-hmm. And it was almost like, I, 
I I can't escape. <laughs> I can't escape, escape this in a movie about this. <laughs> oh man, Jesus! So I, you know, the movie was kind of reflecting back to me, and that's what the movie is. Yeah. To me, mm-hmm. at this point in time, maybe because of everything swirling around in my mind, it's these things that I'm trying to move beyond. Yeah. But there is an impossibility to it unless, not unless, until it just goes. Wow. Yeah. That you know that makes me think of um, what Linklater says when he talks about the Before trilogy, especially uh, Before Midnight, when he says, "Hey." If it's um, that movie, the movie can kind of be anything you want it to be, or not if, even if not, maybe if you don't want it to be something, it is. It kind of shaped itself around where you are. He's, you know, you can watch Before Midnight, and if spoiler alert, kind of, if anyone hasn't <laughs> seen it, but if you're watching Before Midnight and you're going through a really bad breakup, that movie means one thing to you. It says one thing to you, and it reverberates on a cellular level, on every level. Mm-hmm with being a breakup story it's purely a breakup story that's all it is if you're watching it going through a breakup if you're watching it and you've just fallen in love then before midnight is purely a a love film and it's about the giddy deepness the the untaught the untouchable depths of love and how deep it goes and how permanent it can possibly be and how mind-blowing it can be or if you're watching it as someone who's just been in a long-term relationship and you're happy you're just happy that's what the movie is about. It's about how even during the bad times you find the happiness. And it's a, it's a kind of magic in that film and in that trilogy. And I think it's a kind of magic that's an inherent vice, which is, as you said, you know, when you're having a nightmare, you're like, oh, God, can I just not get away from this goddamn person just for one movie, which is about either trying to get away from a goddamn person <laughs> or get that goddamn person back. And now I've, I'm looking at my phone. How dare you, Peter, by the way, be looking at your phone during Inherent Vice? Oh, man. The, these, How dare These were you? particularly <laughs> serious texts. Fine, that was like, fine, wait, fine. These were sort of texts like, wait, are you saying what I think you're saying? Okay, I have to pause the movie and deal with this. It was that kind of thing. <sighs> well, at least you paused it. I'll give you that. You yes. paused it. Okay. Yes. All right. Yes. Bless your heart for that. But, yeah, that's that's kind of why I, that's one of the, one of those reasons, you know, to go back to what we were saying earlier. There are these, these what feels like tendrils of pot smoke are actually hooks that grab into you in this film is that it always shapes itself around where you are it's a movie that if you want a stoner comedy you can watch it as a stoner comedy and you can just be a goof with a really heavy sex scene at the end or if you want it to be a really heavy relationship it's 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 if you want it to be a heavy relationship film you can watch it for that and that's all it is with a couple good jokes a couple good dick and fart jokes in it if you want it to just to be about you know being in love with someone, even if you joke that you're not, you know, just don't mean we're back together. It's exactly that, and I think that's 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 the magic of this movie is that it's it's always what you need it to be, mm-hmm. even if it's not comfortable. As 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 I'm assuming, maybe when you're getting those texts, doesn't make Inherent Vice the most comfortable movie in the world, but it does make it comforting. Does that make sense? Yes, and yes. <laughs> um. It made it more resonance in that sure. moment, that's for sure. Yeah. And the the movie, however I felt about it then, it definitely grows for me and has grown for me through these multiple viewings I've done mm-hmm. over the past couple of weeks. That's like I may not be able to 
sit down and totally map out the entire plot because maybe I still have a couple of questions of some things here and there. But well, hey, I'm. But if I you have questions. I'm your man. I under. But I understand it all the more. Yeah. Oh God, that's so good. Yeah. You know it. You see it. You see yourself in it. No, so you, oh, yeah, you see yourself yeah. in in the, yeah. the pot fog of this thing. You you yeah. see yourself, and you see you see the person you're thinking about. If even mm-hmm. if you're if you're thinking poorly of them, if you're thinking well of them, if you're missing them, if you're happy that they're gone, or if you're dying that they're gone. You know, it's uh, PTA had that great line. He's like, you know, when someone asked him, "What is this movie about?" He's like, "It's just about not being able to let go of that person you should probably let go of, and you know you should let him go, but you can't you can't help but go." Who's she talking to? Who's she fucking? Who's she calling on the phone? I, I have to know. I'm I have avoiding to talking know. about certain things here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, then you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. And that, to me, I think was very much a curveball for people going into this movie, especially after those trailers, and especially after the hype of, well, this is going to be the long goodbye. Mm-hmm. PTA's long goodbye. Or Lebowski. Or, oh, yeah. This is going to be, you know, which if... If we know anything about PTA, it's like, why on earth would he try to even do something like that? It's like the, mm-hmm. It seems like the last thing he would even want to attempt. But, you know, I, that's one of the many things, the myriad of things that makes this film a curveball is that that's what it's really about. And there's a great line that I've mentioned it a couple of other times um, that... No, no, no. Th- no, no okay, I no. see you thinking. Yeah. But that's speaking of those curveballs, I think one of them is is you either go into this movie thinking that you're going to see a screwball zany comedy or you're going to see PTA's film noir, although he's already kind of made a film noir with Sydney. This is going to be his detective movie. This is going to be his cop movie. And yet he he said about the making of this film, the noir idea was something we were trying to get rid of. Just ignore that. We kept thinking about trying to make a Neil Young song out of this movie. Melancholy for the past, kind of heartbroken at the way things have gone, but still hopeful. You can still tap your toe to it. Which is totally the Neil Young song that's in the uh, <laughs> that's in the that's, that's in the it's, scene, which is not on the album, unfortunately. But I guess not on the soundtrack. The album yeah. has one Neil Young song, so I guess it has the a... the live version of Journey Through the Past, which is the best version. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, they, instead of giving us the film noir that we thought we were going to get going into this thing, no, it's, it's a love movie. It's a Neil Young song of a movie, that kind of that sweet sadness uh, where you almost kind of want to be sad. You know where sometimes you'll put on a record, it's like, I'm going to make myself sad, oh, God damn it. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to be sad. I listen sad to those Sinatra records, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking oh, about yeah. then. You have oh, those yeah. Dark Nights of the Soul oh, where oh. you're like, <laughs> you're like, a book about them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're like, I'm going to make myself feel something heavy because mm-hmm. I want to. Mm-hmm. And who better, who better to do that with than Neil, who's, who has that voice that's just, it's, it's like PTA said, it's melancholy, but you can still tap your toe to it. And something that's kind of interesting about this film, uh, you know, and again, this is some more, This, I mean, I was going to say this is some more pretentious guessing that I'm sure if PTA heard it, be like, no, not at all. But at the same time, that's what the hell this show is for. Otherwise, what are we, what are we doing here, Peter? But something that's interesting to me is both of the Neil songs on the soundtrack, Journey Through the Past, which is kind of the marquee one. Yeah. But there's also this one, which is such a beautiful track, Harvest. Yes, it is. From the ty- from the album of the same name. Neither one of these songs existed in 1970. Journey Through the Past was released in 1973. Uh, Harvest and the record Harvest came out in 1972. Now, hmm. 
what's kind of interesting, and I don't know if we even want to go anywhere with this, but it's my job to bring this to you. And that is to say, it's a little interesting that whenever Shasta appears, a song that did not exist in this time period. Oh, man. Cans Vitamin C came Uh out in 1972. Okay. Neil Young's Harvest came out in 1972. Neil Young's Journey Through the Past came out in 1973. The sequence when Shasta shows up takes place in March of 1970, and the memory of her in the Journey Through the Past sequence takes place in 1969 pre-Manson. Point being, and then this this fantasy sequence, or this, we don't know what the sequence is. This sequence in which he sees her on the boat, Mm -hmm. either in his head or in reality, is taking place in 1970. It's interesting to me that when Shasta Faye is on screen, you have music that does not exist at the time playing as, as a background. I would be the I would not be the person to pick up on that. Wow. I wish everyone listening in their cars at home wherever could see the combination of face ingredients Peter is laying on me right now as I said that. To no. Him. No, I <laughs> No, you're just you're working through it. I can I'm see you working computing. Through it all. I mean, in each case these songs are perfect and definitive. It's and like yes. that's what anchors the scene to your memory is Oh, you mean the the journey through the past? We keep talking about that scene, the marquee scene of the film, and we keep calling it the journey through the past scene because that's what it is. It's anchored yeah. to that song. Yeah. Who, when they think of the introduc- introduction scene or the, the credits sequence, that, that great mm-hmm. neon font, mm-hmm. you can't think of that scene. And a lot of times it's hard to think of this movie without thinking, hey, you, and hearing yeah. cans vitamin C. Yeah. Didn't exist when this took place. Didn't exist. These are these... Are these these songs that are totally out of tune and out of vibe with the timeline. And I don't know what that means. I don't know if that's supposed to mean anything as vis-a-vis Shasta Faye and the, the, the realness. And I'll also point out, no music plays in the, sec- in the sex scene, the, the, the real Shasta scene, if we want to call Is it that. Is that score in that there's, scene? There's, there's Greenwood score, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The, the song Shasta Faye. Because uh, mm-hmm. there's Shasta, Shasta Faye, and then Shasta Faye Hepburn. I there's three Shasta yeah, tracks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, in that sequence, it's just it's just pure Greenwood score. It's mm-hmm. not a pop song. But when we get these the other score. sequences, I love the score. these other sequences that we maybe can't, you know, well, I mean, that's clearly Shasta at the beginning. I, that's that's really Shasta in the apartment. But as it, far as we know, yeah, <laughs> I can't imagine that, that that's Doc making that up. But um, <laughs> although he. You know, he does tell Penny that it was Shasta called him to tell him about Mickey Wolfman. So, hey, maybe we're going – I'm not going to go down this cul-de-sac. I'm not going to do this where she becomes his Tyler Durden. I'm not going to do this, Peter. We're going too far. Ooh. But he does tell Penny – and maybe he's just trying to get out of trouble with Penny and not be like, oh, yeah, my ex did show up at my home. But he does tell her that, that – that, he does. But he does tell Penny that, yeah, she called me. It's funny you mention that. She called me. That uh, and she said, you know, she the the Wolfman snatch. Yeah, that could be, that could be him. Just we are getting to we're getting to a heavy place. Yeah, 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 yeah. We are we you and I we're going places tonight. <laughs> we are going places. But 
let's move away from that because that's that's opening up like a whole other episode. Okay. It's, we're just putting it out there for your enjoyment, people. Okay. We're putting it out there for you to chew on next time you watch this movie. If you if you have our sickness and you're constantly rewatching, or my sickness constantly rewatching, or Peter's sickness occasionally rewatching, I mean, it might be something to it. I mean, none of these <laughs> songs are heard in the actual film in the world of the film. Well, they're just to show you how many how I've watched this too many times. There is a shift in the audio from the journey through the past flashback to Doc standing outside the real Golden Fang, hmm. the building. And when he walks to his car and Dennis is sitting in the car, the audio changes and it gets very trebly and tinny, uh, implying that Journey Through the Past is playing out of Doc's stereo. But of course, yeah. again, this is all Doc's perception. Yeah, true. So maybe he's so, just got Doper's ESP and he's predicting a song three years before it happens. I think that's exactly what's happening. <laughs> that's here. exactly. Yeah. I think that's oh it. my that's god, it. that's it. That's but it. yeah, I, I do love how Neil he he is also baked into this film, and that even Doc looks like Neil. Doc is designed to look like Neil with the chops mm-hmm. and the hair and the hat and mm-hmm. the the fatigue jacket, and that line. I always go back. It's such a perfect line. Of PTA's melancholy for the past, kind of heartbroken at the way things have gone, but still hopeful. You can still tap your toe to it. That's an air of ice. It's melancholy for the past. It's heartbroken at how everything has turned out. But you can tap your toe to this movie. You can, and yet I'm still kind of stuck in the first two parts of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's never going to be the, a happy movie. Uh, I, 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 you know, as much as I said that it could be, you know, in that link ladder before before trilogy. I'm a relatively happy guy now these days, and I, I watch this movie, and I still can't help but be sad. And I think because I think I think that when you get to a certain point in your life, it doesn't matter how happy you are, it doesn't matter how rich you are, it doesn't matter how successful you are. You know, what's uh? We're gonna go weird with this. What's Lex Luthor say in Superman? By land, it's the one thing they're not making anymore. <laughs> There's two things, technically, that aren't being made anymore, and that's more time. Time for yourself. You get what you get. You don't get more of it. It doesn't build and build and build and just go on forever uh, like the ocean seems to. It's finite, and it runs out. And I think that that is something that kind of beats in the heart of this movie is that it, it runs out. And not only does it run out, not only does it run out, it changes everything as as it's running out. It doesn't just disappear, but it changes everything that it touches ir- irrevocably. And or conversely, in maybe Doc's case with Shasta, maybe it doesn't change Shasta, but enough time goes by and it reveals a Shasta he didn't want to see, a mm-hmm. Shasta that he didn't want to know, or a Shasta that is inconvenient for him to acknowledge. And I don't mean to say that in a way that like Doc is any kind of monster. I think Doc is a genuine hero and I love Doc. But I do think that you do think that time reveals a Shasta to him that he didn't want to see, that he wasn't ready to deal with. And I think that's so much of his relationship with this woman is coming to grips with the fact that she isn't this woman bathed in Argento red. She's just this sad fucked up girl that had a hard life Yeah. after she got out of uh, Playa Vista High and came to Hollywood to star in the movies and it it's a very old story she comes to Hollywood to be a movie star and it, it, it didn't work out and it didn't work out hard mm-hmm. and he's having a hard time reconciling that with the woman that he loves and wants to love and that's there's a, that's never not sad that's never not melancholy that resignation 
to to time and that resignation to the idea it's not what I thought it was it's just it wasn't what I thought it was going to be and it didn't turn out the way I thought it was going to turn out <laughs> we got we got sad here at the end me and you didn't we <laughs> this is sad yeah this is sad oh, but man. at the same time I that's that's to me where the film goes I don't really yeah. know what the future for Doc is at the end unless you know he's just going to sort of close himself off from anything connected to out there in the world and the Golden Fang. The Golden Fang's going to be fine. The Golden Fang has the time. The Golden Fang is better off than where it began. Well, it's, yeah. got its, it's got its heroin back. It's got its heroin back, but the Golden Fang is like, we're going to get Reagan in here in yep. six or ten years. We're going to be A-OK. Yep. And Doc, it just feels like it's a very internal movie, and it sort of feels like he's going to sort of close in and try to forget all of that as much as possible. I don't know if I agree with that part. I okay. don't know if I think he'll close it off. I think part of Doc's goodness is he'll never not. I don't think he's capable of ignoring it. I don't. Th- I don't think there's anything he'll be able to do about it. I don't. But I don't think he'll close his. I don't think Doc is the person who can close his attention to it or his turn away from his knowledge of it. Although I, I do think you know I've, I've, we've spent the past you know half hour talking about how he's able to do that with Shasta Faye because. Yeah. He needs a version of her. But I also think part of this movie is in a weird way. You could look at this movie as, if you want to get all uh, hacky screenwritery about it, and if you want to make it all about an arc, capital A, arc. He's got to have an arc. I think for Doc, a big, a very hazy, lazy arc for him that, that sputters and stops and starts but finally gets to a place it needs to be is, I think, him recognizing that Shasta Faye is who she really is mm-hmm. and not just you know I think it's in a way you could say it's kind of interesting the way the song titles that have her name in them appear in the soundtrack it just starts a Shasta a glimmer a piece yeah, yeah. halfway through the record you get another song called Shasta Faye it's a little bit more and it's only at the end that you get the whole picture Shasta Faye Hepworth the song the, the, the song title gives the full name and I think that uh, that album a lot I didn't really think of it that way but yeah I love the way that record is structured yeah yeah. and it's structured around Shasta Faye the way this movie is she only pops up three times on that soundtrack she's got three songs with her name on them Uh, but the whole soundtrack is built around that and if we want to get super pretentious I think you could argue the film is built around on a plot level is built I think around the Harlingens and ultimately revealing itself to be about their salvation but I think on a on an emotional level this, the film is a really a lot, a lot about Doc coming to terms with this isn't Shasta. She's not Shasta. She's Shasta Hepworth. She's a whole picture. She's a whole person. And that involves a lot of complications that he has to acknowledge that I don't think he was either willing to or capable of before time of yes. this film. And if I may say one other thing, if we can just bounce back to uh, – Bounce, bounce. Bounce back to those songs and what they could possibly mean – uh, if they're all these songs from the future, of from from 1970s point of view, a big part of this film feels like someone looking back, and yes. a big part of this film, whether it's Sorlige as a real person because she starts the film by telling us, you know, she's telling us this stuff in past tense. She came up the back alley the way she always used to. She's telling mm-hmm. us the story, <clears throat> and maybe it's because she's a real person telling us this, or maybe it's because Doc remembering this. But maybe Doc's remembering this from the mid six, from the mid seventies, rather. Maybe he's remembering it from nineteen eighty. There was a nineteen eighty version of Doc, who's applying these songs that exist in the time that he's remembering, 
I have no problem with that. Now I'm really getting into stoner talk. This no, is why you can't no let me go. With that. That's why you can't let me go too long, Peter. I, no, I, I go down I, these cul-de-sacs. I, I have no problem with that whatsoever. <laughs> oh boy, we got heavy, didn't we? We got deep. Yeah, yeah. We that's got okay. we got deep. That's okay. That's, that's, that's okay. You can't have a scene like this, and you can't talk about a scene like this and not get a little heavy. Yeah. The heaviness just hit you, didn't it? it the just heaviness hit you. did just hit me it because just hit you. the heaviness did just hit me. <laughs> well, you know what? We're going to do we're gonna have a big hug, you and me, as soon okay. as this is over. Okay. okay. We're going to have a big okay. hug. We're going to okay. cry it out. <laughs> okay. Which don't mean we're back together, but we're going to drive into the fog together. We're going to be okay, me and you. We're okay. going to be okay. Okay. On that note, yeah, I must thank you for coming in today. I'm happy to do it. This has been so much fun. I love reading your work Thank you. and being able to talk to you about your work and being able to talk to you about one of the subjects of your work, one of the many subjects of your work, noir and melancholy and, 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 and humanity in film. It's been an absolute pleasure for me. It was a thrill for me as well. Do me a favor. Yes. In case anyone's listening to this doesn't know you, tell them where they can find you, read your stuff. The blog is Mr. Peel's Sardine Liqueur. Um, I still don't know why I named it that. No, I know why I named it that, <laughs> but I rue the day I named it that. Um, um, sardine liqueur <laughs> taken from the classic Peter Falk Alan Arkin film Big Trouble um, what? no no it's another film set in Los Angeles I, I'm just that, in, uh, very, it's very pertinent that you are feeling waves of regret for that choice it's very, at least it's very, a conversation very starter point, a very at, episode appropriate at least it's a conversation starter I'm on Twitter at Peter A. Peel that's and where I'm on an Instagram as well. Sure, and I must point out that you and me were fighting the good fight. LA oh, Gould Avatars oh, we, on Twitter. Um, You've got the real deal. I've got the uh, the tattoo version of him. That's true. But you that's and I true, are fighting the good fight with LA Gould Avatars out there you know, on social media. Love that. Love that Gould. Love brothers in arms. Brothers in Gould. Yes, me you know, and you. Busting. Getting straight. Capricorn One. All the good ones. Yeah. Yeah, some some movie, Long Goodbye. Oh, long, well, the long, yes, we talked about the Long Goodbye, <laughs> though. I mean, we can talk about the Long Goodbye more right now. Absolutely. Nah, but nah, uh, Bless his heart. Bless Gould's heart. Bless your heart for coming thank on you. today talking thank to me thank about this. Thank you so much. If anyone doesn't read, Peter, you really, really, really should. I highly recommend this essay. And if you're looking for something that's really going to break your heart, check out his essay on Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's thank a you. wonderful piece of writing. Thank you. That really as I told you tore my brain apart because I was like I can't, I, I can't write about this movie now because Peter did it you did yeah. an excellent job ah, you did yeah I was totally just setting you up to give me a compliment that's, that's all that was <laughs> but, thank you but you gave thank me a compliment so thank you thank you <laughs> thank you oh boy thanks to you thank you thank you thank you again for coming on today I so appreciate it thanks to everyone for listening it's a thrill to be here oh listen to this guy he's so nice and I will see you all next time where myself and a very special guest are going to see that it's a very nice night on the beach tonight. We should probably see ourselves to the exit while Travis and Peter hug it out. Though before we do, let's read once more from Old Pete's essay. I'm feeling right on the verge of saying I love inherent vice, but it may take at least one more viewing to know for sure. Maybe two. I may need to write a whole other piece on it. For now, it stays just as alive in my head as those memories of unavoidable melancholy that I can't shake no matter how late it is, and what I need to dig out of the film to love it may still be buried a little further down.
Sometimes when you love something, it's tough to know right away. I may change my mind about all this within five minutes, and I'll be able to declare just how close it ranks to the likes of Boogie Nights and The Master. My mind may never change, for now this is me, but there's never anything as inevitable as change. Boy, you said it, Pete. Will your thoughts on Inherent Vice change between now and the next one? We'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.